Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 23 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. My name's Rod Murray, and on this episode, there's only one thing that matters, and that is the 113th US Open Championship. Yes, we are just a little over a week away from the year's second major, and as the clock ticks down, as always, the excitement starts to build. Now, we're sure to see, as we always do this upcoming week, all sorts of amazing moments and shots. But regardless of the eventual winner, there is already one guaranteed star of the show next week, and that is the course itself, the East Course at the Merion Golf Club. Merion's one of America's most storied golf clubs, and this will be the fifth time it has hosted the National Championship. There's also been six U.S. amateurs, four U.S. women amateurs, a Curtis Cup, Eisenhower Trophy, and a Walker Cup. So Merion is not short on either history or... Or credibility. Joining me today to discuss all things US Open and Marion are a couple of regulars plus a special guest whose area of expertise is the Marion Golf Club and its championship history. First, let me welcome blogger, analyst, commentator, author, and I note from last week at the Memorial Shack, a potential internet TV star in the making, Jeff Shackelford from uh, from the west coast of the US. I notice you you say internet TV star. I'll, I'm not going to take that personally, but thank you, Rod. Good to be here. <laughs> did did that appear on actual TV, Jeff, or was it just us out here in internet land that got to see all that? Uh, just internet. But I will be on regular television <laughs> next week on the Grey Goose 19th Hole with David Fay and, and John Feinstein Ooh, on the Golf Channel. Yeah. You guys don't get to see that down under, but um, uh, we'll be talking all things Marion uh on ne- on cable television, we'll find a we'll find a link. I think you've uh, you've appeared on there before, so obviously good enough to get a second invite, and that's a big statement in television, Jeff. So congratulations to you from down here in Australia, commentator, columnist, course architect, pardon me, and player Mike Clayton. Clates, I don't think you're a TV star, but we love you anyway. No. Not me, but good morning, Rod. It's early here in Australia, but that's fine. We're happy with that. It is indeed, and you've had some toast because I heard you eating it just before. Crunching away, yeah. Just before we started, a bit of Vegemite. That'll put hair (laughs) on the inside of your chest. From right in the heart of where the action will take place next week in Pennsylvania, we've got a very special guest today. He's authored several books, but his latest, which I believe is just waiting for the final chapter to unfold after we have a result next week, it's a comprehensive study of Marion and its championship history. It's a welcome today to journalist and author Jeff Silverman. Jeff, we do appreciate you taking the time. Thanks. A pleasure to be here. Yeah, and uh, good to have you on board. Jeff Silverman, I wanted to start with you and two Jeffs. We're never doing this again. I'm going to start with you. Um, did I get that right? Is the final chapter of your book waiting to be written? I understand it is not so much just a history of the club, but a history of Marion and championships. Are you waiting until the result next week before you, you finish that book? Absolutely. Uh, what I've done is is take the tack of not writing the traditional club history, which is who won the member guests, but uh, uh, really looking at Marion's history uh, across the history of golf, uh, going champion to championship to championship to championship. And uh, in fact, uh, the book was originally supposed to come out uh, before the Open, but it was basically decided, well, wait a minute, this club has worked so hard to get the Open back. We'd like it here to celebrate. So, uh, so that's what we're doing. We're, we're waiting for the final chapter, um, you know. And as the writer, you always wish it's uh, the best possible chapter you could have. <laughs> but after doing this for two years, uh, whoever wins is fine with me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, although of course, Jeff Silverman, Marion has a history of throwing up great champions. So this, I, I, I think you started ori- originally to write a book just about the club's history. But the major, the, the the championship history is so interesting because of those who've won there. Some of the the pivotal moments that have happened at Mary. Give us a thumbnail sketch of some of those uh, that have taken place over the years. Some of the big moments that Marion has hosted. Well, uh, 
when we think of the big moments, we obviously think of the men. Uh, so we go to 1916 to the uh, uh, U.S. Amateur, the first U.S. Amateur that was ever held in Philadelphia. They had held a couple of Opens before, but remember in those days the Amateur was by far the prevalent test. And uh, one of the reasons Marion was built was to somehow lure the big test to Philadelphia. So right away, what do you have? You have uh, uh, Chick Evans winning the first amateur here. He had just won the Open the month before, uh, the first, as we call it, the, the first double champion. Uh, but he was completely upstaged by the 14-year-old in the field making his national debut, kid named Bobby Jones. Uh, uh, and, and the Jones story that year was, I mean, a 14-year-old kid going in the, through the third round and losing to the guy who had won the, the uh, amateur twice. I mean, it was a, a fabulous story. Uh, 1924, the next one. Uh, Bobby Jones has now won his amateur. He's won his open, but he hasn't won an amateur yet. Wins the amateur at the club, uh, a member of whom is Max Marston, who was the defending champion. He he had actually won the amateur in 1923. Uh, the other kind of wonderful thing about uh, 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 1924 is that uh, 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 Jones played one of his rare matches against Francis Wimet, and it absolutely ate, ate his insides out that he knew he was going to completely crush Wimet. Uh, and of course, 1930 is the slam. Um, and the great thing about the slam is that it happened, uh, B, that it was completely planned beginning four years earlier. Jones had completely decided this was what he wanted to do. And in the untold story, which I do tell in some detail, uh, uh, after it was over, he, he virtually tore the locker room apart. Uh, he was so stressed out, exhausted, fed up with everything uh, that he was upstairs alone with Jimmy Johnston, the guy that won it the year before, and just really just said, I am never playing the game again. Wow. And uh, while he told people downstairs he'd be back soon, be back playing, you'll see me in the, in the amateur or open next year, he knew then he was never going to play again. Wow. Clay, Clay's as a player, I'm sure you've ripped the odd locker room apart, but not after winning the Grand <laughs> Slam, normally after missing a cut, I would have thought. Yeah, 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 I have. I have. That's uh, that's extraordinary. Of course, the Jones connection makes it very special in world, but particularly American golf, doesn't it, Jeff Silverman? Because well, Jones is such a huge figure. It's a key to the whole kind of mythic status of Marion. I, I mean, look look at the beautiful symmetry. Jones starts at Marion. Jones ends at Marion. And Jones wins his first significant American title at Marion. Not that the Open isn't significant, but again, the amateur was, uh, 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 was the key. You know, it's amazing. After Jones won his first, his first Open, actually, uh, but after Jones won his first Open, uh, Walter Hagen or Gene Sarazen never won an event that Jones was in, uh, which is pretty amazing. It's, and, it's uh, extraordinary, isn't it? Jones' Jones's, uh, 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 the strength of Jones's game and, and the way he just dominated in his years of domination are really, really amazing. And this is while he had a family, uh, was trying to build a law practice. One of the things he said to Jimmy Johnston is, I'm losing business. I keep playing golf and I'm losing business. <laughs> Think of that. Think of that in today's world. Wow, I mean, yeah. if Tiger is worth $77 million, what's this guy worth? There aren't numbers for him. Uh, um, we go to 1934, and uh, a wonderful story that kind of begins out Jeff Shackelford's way is Olin Dutra, 
who uh, grew up on the West Coast, grew up uh, uh, around the Monterey Peninsula, learned to play in the winds, was a fabulous wind player, which certainly helped him at Marion. But what had happened was he was a guy, despite having won the PGA tournament in 32, was looked as a guy, an absolutely gutless player who uh, collapses down the stretch. Um, and uh, he was a choke artist. He was called a choke artist of his day. And uh, um, uh, Dutra had quite a literal, went to the mountaintop of the Santa Monica Mountains and spent a day in the Santa Monica Mountains and came back uh, uh, resolved never to have that happen to him again. And uh, uh, one of my favorite stories in the book, one of the things he did was practice on a daily basis. He was uh, 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 a head pro out in, in Los Angeles. He found two trees that were 30 yards apart, 200 yards down a fairway. And he would hit starting from wedge and work back with those uh, till he could hit driver consistently through those trees. Comes to Marion, has this horrible stomach virus, uh, um, and somehow manages to play through uh, eating pills, not eating food, uh, uh, being sick through half the tournament, and uh, and prevailing. That brings us to 1915. Of course, one of the miracles of, of uh, Ben Hogan's return. And and um, if I started now. Uh, uh, we'd be talking in three hours. <laughs> when you so say "we," you mean you. <laughs> just suffice it to say. Just suffice it to say that the one iron may have been the least interesting thing about about uh, about Hogan that week. Uh, it was amazing, and then of course seventy-one Lee Trevino and Jack Nicklaus in the playoff. Um, uh, a remarkable event spurred by the fact that at Doral early that year, when Trevino was just totally down on his game. Uh, uh, and had decided not to enter the Masters, Nicholas comes up to him in the locker room and says, you know, if you ever figured out and accepted how good you are, there might not be a whole lot of reason for the rest of us to show up. And as, as Trevino told me, when he told me that story, when, when the best there ever was tells you that, you got to start taking yourself seriously. And Trevino went on a run uh, leading up to the Open that was pretty good, uh, of course, wins the Open, Wins the Canadian Open a week or two later. Wins the British Open a few weeks after that. That's a pretty good run. It's a, a yeah. great Open. Yeah, three national, uh, three national championships, and then of course the last one that was hosted, Jeff, our own David Graham from down here in Australia. A, an interesting story and man in his own right, um, but a remarkable mo- final round. It's what everybody talks about, of course. One of the, the, one of the great rounds of all time. Uh, missed one fairway, missed the first fairway by less than three inches, but he missed at least on the preferred side, <laughs> like what I would have done, and uh, missed three greens, all of them on the collar. There's been some debate about that because Peter Alice said he only missed one green, but I have seen photographs of him putting uh, from the collar on three different greens uh, and you see feet one foot in the collar one foot in the rough one foot on the green ball clearly in the collar but you know one of the beauties about that uh, um, is is um, again Marion symmetry Graham was a fanatical club maker as you know loved loved tinkering with his clubs loved making his clubs in fact made his own wedge uh, and that wedge he made uh, uh, four copies of it, gave one to Roger Cleveland. It became, it became the, uh, the uh, uh, prototype of the Cleveland wedge, gave one to Nicholas, one to Trevino, and the fourth to uh, 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 Tom Watson. And though uh, uh, Graham did not successfully defend at, uh, at uh, Pebble Beach the next year, 
his wedge did because that was the wedge that, uh, that Watson used to, to chip in on 17 at Pebble Beach. But the point of this story is that club making connection. He had a fabulous connection with, uh, with, uh, Hogan. And after it was all over, and and Graham got back to Texas where he lived. Hogan invited him out uh, 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 for a day at the club, and um, uh, said to him that uh, I have to tell you, I watched that round completely. It was the greatest round of championship golf I have ever seen. And when Graham told me that story, uh, uh, I, he just was so choked up. I mean, it took him about, about 30, 40 seconds to kind of recontrol himself. That's how, that's how powerful it must. Mm. Imagine Ben Hogan telling you that what you did on a golf course was the greatest thing he'd ever seen. Well, Wow, indeed. I feel like an audio spectator here, Jeff, but I'm loving it. This is all fascinating stuff, much of which I've not heard before. Clates, you're, uh, you're very familiar, obviously, with the David Graham story in particular. Being from, Did you know any of that about Graham? I, I knew he was a tinkerer of clubs, but the design of the wedge that went on to become the Cleveland and making four copies, I'd never heard any of that before. I've never heard that, but, I mean, David was – I'm not sure, Jeff, if you know. He was a club pro in Tasmania as a teenager, and he went bankrupt to pay off his debts – he went to work for PGF, uh, which is a uh, precision golf forging, which was the best club-making company in Australia. Uh, he went to work for a guy called Claire Hickson, who was the boss who uh, allowed him to pay off his debts by working and let him play the assistance matches on Monday. And So that was really where he, I guess, learned how to make clubs. He was in the factory grinding out clubs and making clubs for PGF, alongside right. another famous Australian, Tom Crow, who went about – Four years after that, went to America and started Cobra. Hmm. So, that, so, so there was a big connection with PGF with both those guys, really. Uh, well, you know, I, I did know the story about uh, about Graham and 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 the going bust and 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 and, and working that way, and I kind of loved it. It kind of made me really like Graham uh, uh, even more uh, uh, than I would have normally. It, it was very much like Bobby Jones going going into the weeds. And when no one's there, thinking the ball may have moved, so he called a penalty on himself. How many guys would have paid off those debts? Mm. You know, he's an upright guy. Yeah, he is. And, and of course, the connection with the Open at Marion and Cobra was John Schroeder played Cobra clubs and got a slow play penalty in 1981, which they rescinded, which was controversial, no doubt. Yep, it was. uh, it, It was rescinded, and it was very controversial. Uh, and it was uh, it was uh, uh, Bodie Boatwright, who was the former executive director of the USGA, actually called the penalty. Uh, I think it may have been the first uh, uh, slow pay pe- penalty called at the Open. And basically, they convened a panel of uh, I think it was three officials, and, and uh, Boatwright was outvoted two to one when uh, when. Uh, um, uh, uh, John Brody, who was in the foursome, said it was my fault. I kept putting the ball uh, uh, in, in, in the weeds and couldn't find it. Uh, Forrest Fesler, who was also in that group, yep. claims that he wound up pulling off his running into the phone booth and coming out in shorts at the Open two years later uh, as payback to, uh, to Bodie Boatwright for uh, calling the penalty. Just some fantastic names in there. Did you say what did you, Fuzzy Fesler, Forrest Fesler? Forrest Fesler. Forrest Fesler. I've not heard of Forrest Fesler. He was he was second to Hale Irwin in 1974. Oh, I, I really am out of my depth here. You come, know. On, <laughs> come on, Rod. Get I, I'm together. more shocked at, at the uh, – I've never heard of uh, P.J. Boatwright called anything but P.J. Boatwright. Uh, Bodie oh, is – uh, that's a – 
You're right. You're absolutely right. Oh. There was a, back back in my Hollywood years, uh, there, there was uh. a guy who used to be a big muckamuck at Paramount named Bodie Boatwright. And, you know, there aren't uh. many Boatwrights going. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. I was worried. I just could not see uh, P- PJ and his bucket cap having a nickname. He didn't strike me as, uh, as the type. Oh, fantastic stuff. I would have been intrigued to sit in on a conversation between David Graham and Ben Hogan. I would have thought that would be fairly quiet, Shaq. Neither of them known for their great oratory skills, were they? Those two? No, and Hogan was uh, I, I, when Jeff was telling that I, I was thinking of the the notion of him throwing out compliments like that. He was not one to do that very often. Thirty years after <laughs> after having well, to compete, no, still, <laughs> yeah, indeed. Shaq, just to come back to Marion for a moment. Shaq, and of course, growing up in America and, and golf and whatnot here in Australia at my age, Clates is probably a bit bit different, much more into golf than I have been for for a very long time. Marion, you kind of knew about it because David Graham won the Open there, but it had really fallen off the radar, I think, perhaps internationally. What about in America? Lots of talk about you know. This is a great achievement for the club because it was said that the Open would never come back to Marion. How's it sort of viewed in America in sort of the golf culture and, and where did Marion stand? Is it that much of a surprise to see the US Open back there? Well, it's a surprise because of what the Open has become, but Marion has remained uh, in the top 10 really of all the uh, the golf course rankings. Maybe it's in the fifth, top 15 and one or uh, the other, but generally it's it's maintained its place as – one of the the uh, elite facilities in golf, so it's really not a a, a shock in terms of um, you know the course has not really fallen off the radar in any way architecturally. It's just that what the Open has become can't really uh, fit at a place like Marion. Although we're gonna we're gonna get a, a chance to see what a boutique Open looks like next week. Mm. Um, so I'm I'm very uh, I'm very excited to see how they make it work. I think I am. Ask me after I spend like 45 minutes uh, trying to get from the press center to the course. Uh, but um, so far, so good. Uh, I'm hearing positive things about about the work they've done. First world problems, Jeff, how long yes. it takes you to get yes. from the press center to, Absolutely. The, to the course. Jeff Silverman, it's been a bit of a, a, a – you and I chatted yesterday just getting some Skype technicality sorted out, and, and you mentioned to me this is kind of not the first time for Marion. It's been written off before as a championship venue. Oh, uh, it, it, it's – one of my favorite stories in, uh, that I tell uh, in this book is in the, in the fall of 1933, uh, Walter Hagen, who was then I think 43 years old, comes down to my, my neck of the woods. I, I live in a place about – I'm about 15 miles from Marion, 18 miles from Marion, uh, which where I live would have then been the complete countryside. And, and uh, um, uh, he was going down to, for a, a week of shooting with a friend of his, pheasant shooting. And and uh, uh, decided to stop at Marion. He hadn't played at Marion since the early twenties, and uh, plays around with with the head pro, uh, the kid that had just won the Philadelphia Amateur, and uh, another player. And already he had been hearing what uh, uh, what his fellow pros were, were saying, which is, "We're going to kill this place. Marion cannot handle the game we play. You know, it's okay for the amateurs, who of course just as good as they were, uh, but but if not better." But they cannot handle uh, – this course cannot handle the game we play. Hagen uh, uh, was interviewed afterwards, started laughing about it, just said, I'm just going to – I just plan to sit on this, uh, on this, on this porch here and, and watch these guys come in with their hard luck stories. Uh, picked two – they decided the, – the pros were saying par will definitely fall 
by uh, in aggregate uh, across four rounds. Someone will break par in over four rounds total. Uh, there will be low scores in the low 60s or mid 60s, and and uh, uh, but you'll see red numbers all over the place. Uh, Hagen said, not a chance. Hagen picked 293. Uh, uh, as uh, uh, 292 as the winning score, uh, which would which would be 12 over par. Turned out he was just being kind because Dutcher won at 293. There was one single round in the entire championship played under par. There was a 66 on the last day by a guy named Tom Creevy, who is uh, not a not an unknown. He was he was a PGA champion, and uh, his great nephew, uh, his great nephew is a pro in Florida named Tom Creevy, who actually married a young lady named Leanne Harden to complete the circle, won the 1998 Girls Junior at Marion, which was Marion's first attempt to get back into championship play after a not very successful 1989 amateur. Wow. It's, wow. Uh, it's, uh, everything that's yeah, I noticed Chris Patton's name never came up. Chris Patton's name never comes up, uh, and it's too bad because yeah, Patton... Yeah. Patton, uh, dis- despite weighing 300 pounds and not looking like a Marion champion, if you sit and talk to Chris Patton for a little while, I think he appreciates the game and appreciates the game the way you played at Marion as well as anybody I've talked to. Um, I-, I mean, it was really, really, he was really quite profound in what he said about Marion uh, uh, and-, and the game that was required of him. Uh, also, interestingly, he knew that he kind of looked like a grotesque on the golf course. And it always it always fueled him. And at uh, uh, when he came in after the first eighteen on the thirty six hole uh, uh, final, uh, Bob Rosberg says puts a microphone in his face and says to him, "Well, kid, do you think you can handle another 18? <laughs> and and and, and uh, Patton said, "Well, well, yeah, yes, sir, I, I I sure can." He says in, in his southern accent, says to says to me, and I'll clean up the language. Who did this guy think he is? I've been playing 36 holes a day. I've been whipping everybody I play. I come from South Carolina where I'm used to playing in 95, not 80. Uh, uh, I am fine. And that, he said, truly, truly fueled him in the afternoon. He had a three-up lead. There was no way he was going to lose it. Clates, Clates. Chris Patton, of course, played here in the early 90s, did he not? He won the Australian Masquerade Championship. Exactly, it was quite so, the character for He was. Everyone made fun of him, but he was a he was a good player. He was a really good player. Yeah, for a big guy, he had a beautiful short game. He had real touch. He could hit the ball three hundred yards, yeah, but yeah. back when they weren't hitting three hundred yards, but but he was amazing around the greens. Well, he won at Kingston Heath, which is really our equivalent of Marion. It's the best course in Australia. What well, it's, it's in my opinion, well, it's certainly one of the best four courses in Australia. But it's on a tiny acreage, 125 or 30 acres. So people often compare it to Marion because of, because it's so such a great course on such a small piece of land. Clates, of course, um, you talked about the the sort of similarities between Kingston Heath and Marion. There, you of course walked Marion last year. You you sort of sent us some photos, which we've talked about before on the podcast. Just give us your sort of thumbnail sketch or or impressions of the course um, from last year, and then we might have a chat about what we might expect to see this year. Well, to me, it just looks ridiculously narrow. It's, I mean, K- Kingston Heath, in contrast, has wide fairways and there's space to play, but Marion looks to me like it's forever trying to prove that it's relevant. So it would be seen as a failure somehow if, the, if 10 under par 1 or 14 under par 1 
So, so the only way to really defend that is to, well, certainly in the eyes of the people who are setting their course up, is to make it narrow. So it just looked unreasonably narrow to me. The 11th hole looks like there's half a hole there. Or, and Jeff can perhaps talk to that hole, but it looked like there was just half a fairway down there. And the, the, the second hole is so narrow on the left. and So it's certainly going to demand that you play like Hogan and David Graham or, or you putt like Ben Crenshaw, one or the other. But it, it looks incredibly narrow. And it looks to me, having you know a, an affection for Royal Melbourne and Kingston Heath and the way the courses look down here, is that it would look so much cooler and so much better if it was just short grass. It would look a, an amazing golf course if it was short grass, but it seems to me to be smothered in long grass, which really distorts the look of it in my eyes. Yeah. But, I mean, beautiful greens, beautiful bunkers, great holes, and it, you know, it, it has all the elements of great design there. And, and whilst it's short through the middle, the difficult holes at Marion are incredibly difficult. And Clates, just on that, is this the mistake? I mean, um, Jeff Silverman was talking there about uh, Hagen back in the 1933, the year before the US Open came there the first time, the pros saying they were going to slaughter the course. Are they just looking at the scorecard at the yardage and saying it can't be that hard? Is that the mistake people are making? Well, probably. Uh, and, and, of course, it depends on how hard and fast the greens are. But, you know, you go to sevens, a, a very short hole, eights very short, but nines are really difficult par three off that new tee. 10 short, 11 short, 12 short, 13 short. You know, so through the middle of the golf course, there's a run of very short holes. But you get to the last five and it's an incredibly difficult finish. So you'd better make something of those middle holes because if you don't, you're going to have a hard time sort of powering in from the 14th hole. So it, it, it's an oddly balanced course in the sense that there's so much short stuff in the middle. But either side of that, it's incredibly difficult. As a- I mean, it's interesting what you say about about the short holes because the short holes are always the interesting holes in that course. Remember, uh, in completing the Grand Slam, both Jones and Gene Homans took a six on number 10 uh, and put ha-ha on the scorecard. It's the easiest hole on the course. Uh, number eight, uh, Trevino couldn't hold it. Uh, 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 with the pin back, Trevino's low ball flight going for the, uh, 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 for the pin – uh, was skipping off the back of the green. He could he couldn't uh, uh, come back in any way successfully with, with with a back pin position. Bogeyed the hole twice in in, in the first four rounds. Uh, was only okay on the playoff because it started to rain and the greens held. But those those short holes are tempting, and and that's the question: how how will these short holes? tempt the players will they play within themselves that, that that completely underestimated concept in golf and everything else in life or will they do something stupid and uh, i think you're gonna see a lot of people doing something stupid on these holes shack that's the essence of good architecture isn't it make the player think and it's how we so often catch out the tour pro particularly in the modern age isn't it to make them think well but you you have to give them a place to hit the ball to, to think the way we like to see them think. Uh, thinking is not how you uh, uh, gauge the, uh, the hack-out shot from the rough. It's thinking about which side of the fairway to be on for which hole location or uh, which length tee shot to play based on how thing, your round's going and, and how the hole's playing and, and what you need to do uh, at that point in your round. Uh, it's, it's, it's not what... I'm seeing it in, in, in the aerial photos and, and what Mike uh, Clayton had sent us in, in um, via email. Um, what I, I, it's not just that it's narrow. It's that there is rough and there are, there are lines that are clearly designed to just simply make certain holes play longer. 
Um, and then the 11th hole, I just don't even know what where you're supposed to hit it. It looks to me like it's – it also looks to me like it's deception. It looks like it's at the top of the hill. The fairway is going one way and then it's going another way in the area where, which you can't see, which which the players, if they gripe about, will, will be within their right to do so because that's just simple man-made deception. That's not deception from Mother Nature. Um, so that's that's what I'm seeing. I, I mean, I'll be out there Monday. I, it's it's hard to go by the aerials. I mean, you look at some of those flybys, and the fifth green looks like a flat circle. Well, we all know it's one of the great greens in the world, and it's not flat by any means. I'm glad I got that on tape, Jeff Shackelford. You saying that there's something that the touring pros can whinge about, and you'll accept that. I'm going to keep that. I'm cut that out and keep that. That's a key. oh oh oh. I'm all for them <laughs> whining all the time. It's just that they usually don't really. It's rare that they they com- they complain. <laughs> articulately about the right things. Jeff Ogilvie, of course, does, and there are a few others we, we know pretty well who, who actually think these things through, uh, but, but the, the majority uh, don't. Let's not go there. We could be there all day. Jeff Silverman, just on the, the, the narrowness and, and whatnot of the golf course, you told us a stunning statistic before we started recording today about, uh, about the fairways at Marion. Marion's on about, a, a, about 123 acres of roughly green area. Uh, uh, of the course. Of that, uh, 26 acres are, are normally fairway. And eight of those acres have been removed to create the U.S. Open Golf Course. Um, uh, it's the USGA's choice. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not quite sure why they have to do that. You know, if, if they say, this is a boutique open, we're going back to marrying, we're going back to a, a place to play uh, that has had so much great history and so much great stuff, and we're going to test today's players against it, why not just play the golf course? You know, why not play the golf course? What does it matter what they shoot? When, when, when Nick Price went out there in 1998, he was asked by the USGA to test drive the course. Uh, he goes out there. Uh, he loved it. He'd been to Marion once before and didn't much like it, couldn't remember a single hole. Uh, but everything had changed. The course had been, had been restored by that point. The, the bowling alleys had gone. It had become a, a good bit more open, more of what the course had been. And uh, uh, Price just said, this is great. This is 18 memorable holes. This is, this is fabulous golf. It's interesting golf. Uh, uh, as long as the USGA doesn't care that, that you know, the, the winning score might be 14 under, uh, uh, this course is, is terrific. Now, of course, if it's dry uh, uh, and, and the greens are firm, um, you know, those, those fairways can be a mile wide. And, and, and they're still going to shoot around par. I mean, that's how tough it is to hold those greens and 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 and, and, and pop those greens. Uh, but uh, you know, uh, in in nineteen in two thousand five, in the amateur, which was essentially a, a, a test to see how the Open would hold up against you know the best young, I can hit it three hundred and seventy five yard players that that, that go uh, of the of the three hundred and twelve rounds shot at Marion. Uh, six were under par. Six. And not a single one of those rounds under par had reached two. They were all one under par. Well, of course, it's called the U.S. Amateur, Jeff Silverman, but it's actually just the U.S. professional in waiting, isn't it, the U.S. Amateur? Those guys can play. These guys can play. And, 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 and you would figure one guy could shoot lights out. Mm. Uh, uh, they, they played part of the uh, uh, the medal rounds uh, up at, at Philadelphia Country Club next door, and uh, I think it was Charlie Belgian uh, broke the course record. So it's not like this, these kids suddenly forgot how to play. Remember, too, that when you step on the first tee at Marion, 
you're not just playing the golf course. You're playing history. Mm. And the course reminds you. And you get to the 11th hole and you see the plaque. Uh, this is where Bobby Jones uh, 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 completed the Grand Slam. You get to the 18th hole, you see the plaque where Hogan uh, 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 hit his one iron, um, which, by the way, was in his bag on Mon- on Sunday. It was it, w- it, it was not stolen on Saturday. Um, but when you go to Marion, you are playing history. Uh, one of the kids on on the uh, Great Britain and I- Irish Walker Cup team uh, uh, in 2009. Could not even take his club back on the first tee, his first, his first, uh, his first match. He was so intimidated. He, he took literally, no exaggeration, a minute to pull his club to start his backswing. I mean, it's an intimidating place. It's a very intimidating place. You're walking with ghosts when you walk Marion. And and, and uh, you're not just playing the golf course. You you should be humbled by that, shouldn't you, Clates? As a player, um, do those things have? I imagine they probably affect some and not others. I saw a fabulous photo on Twitter this morning from Graham McDowell hitting into the 18th from next to the Hogan plaque. Yeah, he's a you know one of the world's top players as one of USA, but he felt the need to tweet a photo or in fact a video uh, of himself hitting from that particular spot. Do, is it the sort of thing that affects players, Clates? Uh, a little bit. I mean, I, I mean some perhaps, but. I would have thought not. I'm not sure, really. I mean, there's so many play. I mean, I was with a kid two weeks ago who, one of Australia's best amateurs, who barely knew who David Graham was. So, if he was playing there, he certainly wouldn't be intimidated by Marion. But so I think it depends on how much you know the history and revere the history. And I mean, there'll be lots of kids will turn up next week and play who just, you know, to them it'll just be another golf course. Mm. I Which think when really they see the wicker, the first time they see the wicker, they know it's not just another golf yeah. course. Well, of course, but well, you would hope that. But I see so many kids now who have such little interest in the stuff we talk about and, and the history. And I mean, they they're more likely to go to the moon and than have heard of Olin Dutra and have a clue who he was or <laughs> Chick of Evans course, or of you know. Uh, Rod, can I ask Jeff a quick of question? Of course, about you that? can ask uh, him a dozen. Go. The uh, the first tee situation, Jeff. Do you? This may sound a little odd, but what is the plan for next week? Who will be on the on the or under the veranda and, and watching uh, from that choice seat uh, on the first tee? Uh, I'm pretty sure that'll be like USGA people. Okay. Uh, the 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 members uh, have their own little tent uh, that will kind of be out on the edge of the clubhouse, overlooking the the 13th green, you know, looking okay. down towards the 13th green. So I, I, I would think that the USGA has control of the, uh, uh, of the clubhouse. Okay. Just on the USGA shack, this is one of, something I wanted to come to you and ask about when we were chatting about the narrowness of the course, of course, and losing eight acres of fairway, a decision I'm sure that wasn't Marion's, but the USGA's. Historically, can we point to a time when what we're going to see at Marion is a bit of a throwback, isn't it? I mean, the last couple of years, the US Open has changed, and certainly next year, we're going to see a very different US Open at Pinehurst, much more open, much less of that sort of rough around the greens and those kinds of ideas. Historically, when did this sort of thing start? Do we know? I mean, it's always been the accusation the USGA wants to protect par at the US Open. Is that true? Is there any historical notion that you can sort of think of when this idea started, make the courses narrower and, 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 and grow the rough really penal to try and keep the scoring down? Well, I knew you'd ask a question that I couldn't answer. I know that there, <laughs> there was an open at Scioto that Max Bear mentioned, uh, and I'll have to look up the date when, when we're talking here. I'll look it up. But uh, where he mentioned the, this first sign of high rough, uh, I don't know how narrow things got, but I know that there was a, 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 
conscious effort to grow rough along the fairways. And, of course, Max Baer, being who he was, attributed that to uh, their attempts to offset distance increases in the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that was the first time uh, of that. And then Bobby Jones you know, kind of lamented the uh, furrowing at Oakmont as as he didn't directly correlate it to equipment, but he did uh, make the, the, the connection between that and trying to get scores higher and just this uh, par is good kind of uh, mentality that, that has uh, become uh, or became a staple of the USGA. It, it went away a little bit, though, when Mike Davis started setting up the courses. Um, but but this year does have that look of an old-style U.S. Open setup. No doubt about well, you know, Jeff, it's, it's really interesting because in, in 1949, after the women's amateur was played at Marion, Richard Tufts, who, who, of course, is the Tufts family of Pinehurst uh, and was on the executive committee of the USGA and was then chairman of the championship committee, wrote a long memo to Joe Dye, uh, who was then the executive director of the USGA, just talking about basically that what we're doing is we're pulling a string down the fairway, and that's about the width of what this is going to be. He was talking about how every hole at Marion, other than the par threes, had to be narrowed. We have to grow the rough up. We have to grow the rough up around the greens. I, I, I mean, he was he, he was basically wow. for a guy like me, he was basically he was basically you know giving me the nightmare situation. I read I read I read this memo and it's like I can't sleep for two days. <laughs> and, oh. and it's sixty years old. Yeah, <laughs> it's from sixty years ago. Clates is a player. Wow. Can you recall these sort of discussions happening when you were playing the tour? Did you notice that? courses were getting narrower, rough was getting longer, it sort of seemed to permeate at a particular time. Did you hear tournament organisers talking about needing to get scores higher, that they didn't want their courses embarrassed as a well, player? I'm not even playing in America, I played in Europe and Australia, but no, because the ball wasn't out of control. Mm. So, so we, we played that one crazy open at Turnby that Norman won, which was, I remember I shot 18 over par and finished 45th or something. So I mean, that was Norman 63. That was one of the greatest rounds ever, that second round. But that, that was a crazy, narrow setup with ridiculously high rough. But the next time they did that was at Carnoustie. So it took them a long time to go back and make another mess of it. But So the Open normally gets it pretty well. I mean, Muirfield in 66 was obviously narrow. But um, in Europe, that wasn't, a, wasn't sort of seen as being important because no one was arguing that, that the ball was out of control. So there was no need to really defend with narrowness the great old courses because they played, whilst they didn't play like they did in the 20s, they were certainly still playing reasonably well. But So, so it's really a defense against low scoring, which is you know, not the point of the game, I don't think. But anyway, it's a, yeah, another discussion. It's, a, but, it's an interesting know. mindset, isn't it? What, why low scoring would suggest there's something wrong with a golf? Aren't good players supposed to shoot good scores? It's kind of part of the whole point of golf, isn't it? Yeah, and don't we love the Masters so much because of, because of the cheer, the, the roars on the back nine? Yeah. You know, we want to see birdies. We don't. We don't want to see guys be- beating themselves out of the rough. Yeah. Yeah. And, sorry. Yeah, I mean, Greg Turner always had a great point about Conor Montgomery, who, who was probably certainly one of the premier ball strikers of his time. Monty always thought the US Open was his best chance to win, but Turner always argued that's your, that's not your best chance to win because being the best ball striker, you want to give the best ball strikers as much opportunity as you can for them to lay their club on the ball. He says, as soon as you start putting rough in between the club and the ball, 
you drag everything back because you take away the advantage that great ball strikers have. So, so it purely becomes a test of straight hitting. Mm. Of course, some people would argue that straight hitting is great ball striking, but and and what what it's accurate hitting, but but it's not what it's straight hitting, as opposed to Augusta and St Andrews, where whilst the fairways are wide, you've got to hit accurately to a certain point, mm. as opposed to Merrion next week, which is just a test of not hitting accurately to a straight point. It's mm. just hitting straight. Because, of course, wide golf courses clades don't punish straight hitters in any way, do they? They just It's just a matter of the straight hitter has to know where he wants to hit it as well. So it's, it's not like it's a disadvantage to hit straight on a wide golf course. It's only a disadvantage to be crooked on a narrow golf course. They're two different things, aren't they? Well, the best course – well, at Royal Melbourne, it's somewhat of a disadvantage to hit straight because hitting straight, if you judge straight, is straight down the middle. That's really the best place to play from. Hmm. So, so the real advantage at Royal Melbourne and St Andrews is not to hit straight, but to hit accurately to the corners and the edges, which is the way Augusta is, which was the way Mackenzie thought the game ought to be. And I mean, I, I think if Mackenzie came back and saw saw Marion next week, or, or or saw the majority of US Open courses, he would shake his head and say, "Didn't any of you read my book?" <laughs> yeah, you know the answer to that one, Clades. Just on that, before I let you go on this, Clades, and we'll come back to the to the other two guys. If we saw Marion, and having walked it last year, if Marion was as wide as it could be, and I suspect most of us think it should be, and the rough was not what it was, what do you think the winning score might be? It sounds like people have got Marion wrong historically just about every time, thought it was going to be a walkover when it wasn't. If, if the course played uh, wider than it's going to, would we see better golf, but would we see lower scoring? Well, it would be lower. But it would be entirely dependent, and, and Jeff can talk to this way better than I can, it would be entirely dependent on how hard and fast the greens were. So that little pitch up the hill to the seventh hole is an incredibly difficult shot, big long green with contour in it. And if it's rock hard and it's a 80-yard you know, pitch, it's still no snack to get it within 15 or 20 feet. So it would be entirely dependent on the weather and how hard or soft the greens were. Sure, if the greens were soft, the scoring would be low, but if the greens were hard, it's not hard to see it going back to the Nicholas Trevino 280 score, really. Mm. Yeah, indeed. Shaq, um, I've completely lost there. I'm sorry, I, I, I got totally distracted. I've been unwell this week, so you'll have to excuse me for that. My head's all, well, all over the can I Can I just completely rally kill here and ask Jeff another question? Uh, yes, please do. Keep going. This is this has nothing to do with course setup. This is all about money. Um Jeff, the USGA is going to make gobs of money next week from what I think is the, the coolest logo in golf. Uh, is part of your research in the book going to tell the uh, story of, of who created this logo and, and when it came into uh, into play? Why don't you just put one up in my wheelhouse and, and let me swing, huh? Oh, good. I like that. I, I really I don't know the answer. I mean, I think I well, have some theory it, it's on actually, that. It's actually a wonderful story. Uh, um the old the logo used to be the heraldic logo of the uh, Marion Cricket Club, which of course is where the golf club started. They split in the early forties and became two separate clubs. But it used to be an offshoot of the heraldic logo uh, with golf clubs in there in, instead of cricket bats. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, the seventy one Open comes along, and Byron Nelson and Dave Moore and all these guys are talking about how cool the wickers are, and. Um, the club gets a letter from a, an, a, an old member, only at Marion, a guy named Bojack. Bojack uh, uh, was born, grew up, played at Marion until he died, uh, uh, played in the 16, 24, and 30 amateurs. I mean, he was, a, he was a good player. And 
he said, you know, everybody paid so much attention to the to the to the to the wicker. Why don't we make the wicker the logo? And the new head pro at that time, he had just become the head pro the year before, uh, uh, Bill Killerman said, great idea. I could sell this logo. I put this logo on shirts. I put this logo on hats. And I own the pro shop. I'm going to make a fortune. And uh, But, of course, what Marion did, uh, as what everybody does when somebody comes up with a good idea on their own, they created a committee to study it. And uh, the committee went out and hired and hired the 1972 or 73 version of branding uh, and marketing wow. experts. Yeah. And they came up with a logo that had bunkers on it and a new logo wow. that had the, the, the green and white uh, 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 awning of the terrace. And, and Bill Kittleman, who was the head pro, says, oh, my God, my business is just going down the drain. I'm dying here. And Bill, uh, who was a graduate of Yale with a degree in art and architecture, says, I'm going home. He goes home to his kitchen table and paints the wicker. But he, paint, he paints a wicker basket, and he looks at it and says, this is great. But if I, I reduce it and put it on a shirt and put it on a hat, it's going to look like, like, you know, I've got a wasp. <laughs> they, they kind of alighted there. It, it doesn't have any wit. There's, there's nothing to it. It doesn't work. Well, Richie Valentine, who was the son of Joe Valentine, who was the second superintendent at Marion, and between the two Valentines, the Valentines ran the, uh, uh, the Greens Department for 55 years. Richie Valentine was kind of at the, at the end of his rope with the Scotch broom. He said, I'm tired of the scotch broom. It's making me crazy. I can't keep it under control. It's really wrecking my life. I'm pulling it out of the golf course. At which point, Bill Kittleman says, ah, if I put the scotch broom on the logo, <laughs> you're not pulling it out of the golf course. Hence the logo. Wow. That's extraordinary, isn't it? That's, so that's, that's, abs that's ac absolute, absolutely the story. The only changes to the logo have been, uh, uh, and even a great story, like, even a visionary like Bill Kittleman didn't quite get it completely right because he wanted the date on the stick to be 1865, which was the founding of the uh, of the uh, 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 cricket club. Uh, that was immediately said, no, it's 1912, which is the creation of the East Course when we moved to Ardmore. Um, and then in 1995, uh, when uh, things had been going a little rough at the club, but things were starting to look a little better, things were looking up, uh, uh, there was a new kind of uh, uh, group heading toward the top in, in terms of, in terms of the, the board, and the course was looking better. Um, they decided that, wait a minute, 1896 was when golf started at Marion, so this is 1996. We can have a celebration. We can have a 100th anniversary celebration, but you can't have a 100th anniversary celebration in, 19, in 1996 if the, if the darn logo says 1912. <laughs> So they put yeah. the 1896 on it. As they didn't go back to it last year to have another 100th year celebration. Do we know anything about the history of the wicker basket and why on the flags or on the pins, uh, Jeff Silverman? I couldn't find anybody who seemed to know anything about the history of the wicker basket. Have you got any inside information on where the wicker basket idea came from? Join the club. I, I mean, there are all kinds of speculation. You know, the romance of the, 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 the Scottish shepherd goes out with his lunch pail and hangs it on his crook. Uh, 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 while, he, while he's eating lunch, and that becomes inspiration of the wicker basket. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. What we do know, it first appeared at Marion in 1915. The course opened in 1912, so it wasn't until 1915 that we saw the wickers. Who saw them and why, I don't know. Uh, uh, Hugh Wilson may well have seen them in England and, and liked them, or other Marion members who had gone over there. 
but by 1916, I think it was, I may be off on the date a year or so here, uh, uh, William Flynn, the great architect who was then the, the, um, still the first superintendent at Marion, patented the basket and began selling the basket to other clubs. And for several years, places like the Greenbrier and, uh, and uh, Wingfoot and several other clubs had wickers, but they didn't last there. They only lasted at Marion. Why they? Why nobody knows. The only time they were not uh, uh, on site for a championship was 1950, and the closest I've been able to figure it out because there's a little uh, uh, um, back and forth between Joe Dye and Richard Tufts about this. Richard Tufts didn't want to see the flagsticks in 1905 and 1950. I mean, didn't want to see the wickers. And um, in a, a letter back to them. Uh, from Dye talked about an event that happened in the 49 women's amateur. And it, what it was, was uh, uh, a woman hit the basket on 18 uh, with her, with her approach. Uh, the, the 18th hole played as a par five for the women hit the basket. Uh, it ricocheted into the bunker. And this was in the second round. Uh, it had rained terribly. Uh, the ball was just outside the water. Her feet were in the water. She played it uh, actually part of the hole and won her match. But um, they thought that the bounces off the wicker may be unfair. Tell that to Tiger Woods. <laughs> oh, don't, don't, don't get started on that. Clates, have you ever seen anything like it anywhere else? The wicker baskets, they truly are unique, aren't they? I've never yeah, seen anything like it. No, they're terrific. Yeah. Great idea. Yeah. So, and it's a wonder more people haven't copied them. But, but, but I suppose if you're copying them, you're just copying them. And you know, it's a bit like courses that build a bunker in the middle of the green like the sixth at Riviera. It never quite works and it's just a copy and so don't try it. Great form of flattery but doesn't make for uh, yeah. – they, they had an island green I think at the, the Swedish course last week, didn't they, at the Nordia Masters. It was exactly straight out of the sawgrass book. Yeah. Sort of look at it and go, oh, that just looks like a copy, you know. That's, that's nowhere near as impressive. Shaq, I get the feeling you've got a million more questions. Can you take over for a bit? I'm, I'm dying here. <laughs> Uh, well, that the logo story, of course, I wanted to know because mm. I've always heard about um, Bill Kittleman's involvement with that. Um, gosh, uh, uh, who, who, of course, is a good friend of yours. Well, yeah. I know Bill a little bit. Yeah. He, he's people don't know this, but but he worked with uh, Gil Hans, still mm. still does. If there's a project in the Philadelphia area, and was a big part of uh, Gil's inspiration in in architecture, and um, and and is a uh, kind of a legendary uh, figure there at Marion in certain ways as as a um, head pros can be um but um yeah i i guess i'd be curious jeff if you could just tell us uh you, you know you're approaching this uh, club histories are, are kind of a dying thing but i i'd just be curious how you're approaching uh this book is this going to be mostly a tournament an architecture book or are we going to have to uh, also read about uh, who won the ladies uh four ball in 68 uh is this is no worries about the ladies' four ball. Uh, um, what I decided to do is I started to research the book. I realized really how rich the championship history is. I mean, you know, 1904, 1909, women's amateurs at the old course in Haverford, uh, then the move to Ardmore. All of this was interesting. All of it brought about by the fact that by 19, by the early 1990s, Marion was totally off the radar of the USGA. Uh, the course, uh, they didn't like the course. There were some other other uh, um, kind of bad, not exactly bad blood, but, but a few things just didn't work out in the early 90s. And, and so I actually wrote the story of how Marion returned to championship favor uh, mm. for a magazine and uh, got approached about the book and realized, you know, 
you don't have to do those th- those obvious. Uh, you don't have to do the inside stories uh, uh, um, in a small way. You can do them in a big way because Marian people have been involved in the in the course in the club forever. I mean, I know that sounds like a tautology there, but they've been part of the ethos of the club as much as Bobby Jones. But uh, um, what they love about the club is the history of the club and, and the history of the club is essentially golf history so um they agreed let, let's let's have our championship told once and correctly mm. and uh because there are so many there are so many errors um uh, uh people have done good jobs but 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 not as diligent as they, they could be in finding uh uh, uh some of this stuff as I said before about the Hogan's one iron, always been assumed that the one iron was was taken after the uh, the uh, f- uh, final round before the playoff. Hogan himself said, if anybody had just read the paper the next day, uh, Hogan blamed his his uh, 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 misfiring on the eighth uh, uh, tee on his one iron, and he actually mm. talked about using the one iron twice that day. Well, if the one iron wasn't his, his bag, how was he? How was he using it? Also, his 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 shoes were stolen. Uh, if his shoes were stolen, what was he wearing? And and Hogan was so much a center of attention that year that he couldn't do anything without it being covered. Mm. Uh, uh, so his, they certainly would have known that his shoes weren't there if his shoes weren't there. Uh, so um, we were able to keep it at that at, at that level. Uh, but all through it, you know, members have made decisions regarding the course. Members have made decisions regarding championships. Uh, members have been involved in things. Uh, um, the woman who won the 1949 amateur, Dorothy Porter, her daughter has been a member at Marion for 30 years and a great player. Uh, um, so, uh, I was able to get away from, from the minutia that kind of uh, haunts most club histories to really do a, 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 a larger look into the club by going through a how they got the open again, b how they built the golf course in the first place, and the oh. early golf history, and then going into the championships. Don't, don't start uh, on the don't start on the, uh, of the golf course, please. <laughs> please don't start on that. No, C.B. McDonald did not build the golf course. Okay, okay. well we got that out of the way. Good. Now, now, it's not good. Now, Jeff, the one thing we, the one tournament we didn't talk about or mention was the Eisenhower Cup in 1960, which was mm. Nicholas really and the, his domination. Do you know much about that week and what happened I, there? I, I know a lot about it, and my favorite story because Jack told this to me. To me, it was Mr. Nicholas. Actually, I'm, I'm really not on a first name basis, <laughs> but he told me this story. Uh, um, he he had for the last five or six years had never missed a home game at Ohio State, a home football game at Ohio State, and here they were playing. It's the final round of the uh, of the uh, uh, Eisenhower, and uh, Ohio State is playing. So, uh, like all of us kids growing up in New York in the in the fifties, uh, 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 going to school, listening to the World Series with 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 the, with the uh, uh, earpiece down our arm from the radio and 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 listening. Jack Nicholas played his final round at Marion, listening listening to Ohio State destroy USC. Uh, but the key to that, I mean, Nicholas, Nicholas played four unbelievable rounds. Uh, uh, I mean, he, he he I think he was what 14, 16 under par, some some amazing number like that. Yeah. Um, but he is the first to say that he did not play the Marion that people play in championship situations because this was an international event, and and the club was instructed to set up the golf course so as not to humiliate 
uh, um, you know, people from Ceylon who shot 109 anyway, or, or, or India. Uh, uh, we're trying to attract attract the world into this game. We don't want to humiliate their best players. So it was basically not even set up for a, for a, a, an outing. It was it was it was it was it was set up for for first tee, right. and right Jack took complete advantage. Right for the taking, mm-hmm. Jeff. It just dawned on me while you were talking earlier about Ben Hogan. There's two things you won't read in 2013. I hit the one iron twice. <laughs> what about some of the things we've lost from golf? I hit the one iron twice mm-hmm. during a round of golf, gentlemen. All Marion, an amazing place. We should really talk about to finish up what we expect might happen next week. And Jeff Silverman, I want to come to you first. You, you touched on the the club falling out of favour with the U, USGA, etc., and it's something we'll probably see this week. Um, the size of the property itself, the US Open is a big circus these days, is it not? And are, are those concerns of the USGA's about the size of the property and getting people in and out, etc., um, well founded? I mean, logistically, Jeff Shackleford touched on it earlier. Logistically, it's not necessarily going to be the easiest U.S. Open to attend, is it? Uh, no, I, you're not going to be able to follow a player for 18 holes. It'll be difficult. Mm. Uh, um, uh, you, you're going to be stuck in grandstands and spots. It'll be difficult moving to certain places around the course. On the other hand, the uh, 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 corporate tents will be probably closer to the golf course than they, they are anywhere else. Uh, they're on people's lawns on, on Golf House Road, and Haverford College is about a wedge from the golf. I mean, literally a wedge across the street from the golf course. So uh, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty close. I mean, in that way, uh, they they've scaled it back. They're saying it's a it's a quote boutique open, twenty five thousand uh, uh, tickets a day. Uh, you know, they said that kind of in nineteen eighty one, and, and <laughs> there were like thousands of counterfeit tickets and, and people coming in. I think that'll be better. Uh, uh, remember, security is being done at this by Homeland Security, so it's, it's, it, it's, not, it's not the blue coats at the, at the door mm. here. Um, so I think, uh, I think uh, uh, um, it will be interesting, mm. uh, to say the least. Could, could those issues preclude Marion from hosting again at some point in the future? I know it's, you've, you've already told us how it keeps getting knocked down and, and getting back up. but uh, Hard to say. Course aside, but those logistical things probably pay more of a factor, don't they, in choosing venues these days than the courses in many ways. Yeah, and, and you know, one of the interesting things, I mean, I, I, worked, I worked for years in Hollywood, and, and uh, Orson Welles for years had wanted to do a movie and, and uh, called The Big Brass Ring, which is eventually made. And he went to Jack Nicholson at one point and, and asked Jack if he would read it. And he, Jack said, I love the script. It's the, it's the best script I've ever seen. Uh, but I can't do it because if, if, if I work for scale for you, which is what I would need to, to do this, how could I say to other people that you got to pay me my $20 million? Mm. Uh, well, you know, it's the same kind of thinking I fear that might, might pervade here, uh, which is uh, they'll look at this as a one-off, one-time. Uh, um, if it's a fabulous open, though, will they? Mm. Uh, uh, should they preclude these kinds of courses uh, um, I mean, do you want to see the open play to Congressional Country Club every year? Uh, um, you know, there, there, there are there's a reason. You know, it's odd that if you look at the Walker Cup, look at the venues they play the Walker Cup on, and you wonder to yourself, gee, if a guy's a really good golfer, why would he ever turn pro? <laughs> yeah. Good point. You know, uh, um, and, and and these are fabulous places, uh, but but they can't they they can't handle the infrastructure. So I think that we'll see how it happens. Is the USGA willing to bring it back? David Faye to say, you know, his worst nightmare is his two daughters would get married in the same year, which they wind up doing. Um, 
But uh, uh, how would I pay for it? I pay for it by saving up in other places. Well, this is the two of them getting married in the same year. And, and, and he built on it by putting in from other years. Uh, um, we'll see what happens. Glad to, glad to hear, USGA accept it. Glad to hear you're still with us after the, the concept of the congress, uh, congressional host in the open every year. Oh, yeah. was thrown right. out there. <laughs> you might have fallen off your chair at that. Glad, so I'll come to you first on this. What do you expect to see player-wise next week? Does the course particularly suit anybody? I, I think Bob Rotella once told me that it any US Open, there are really only 10 blokes who can win and they're the 10 who believe they can win. Is he on the right track or or not? Well, no, because there have been lots of varied winners of the US Open. I mean, I think that's true for the for Augusta and the British Open, but we've had Webb Simpsons and Andy Norse and Island Dutras and, you know, lots of different guys have won the Open. Um, I mean, Tiger's still the best player. So he, there'll be lots of irons off the tee, so that kind of negates the Safety he might be somewhat of a crooked driver, although I saw he was in the top 10 in driving accuracy last week at Muirfield. So I wouldn't read much into how he played there. So, I was so he's say, obviously. Didn't do him any good hitting it well off the tee there. Well, <laughs> yeah, I, I see he made that crazy triple bogey on 18 that third day, rough a, what looked like a pretty decent second shot. So you wouldn't read much into that. But I mean, it's hard to pick guys who win the US Open. Looking back, you would, if you look at Hogan and Trevino and David Graham, that gives you the answer. I, mean, I don't know who the, who the equivalent modern player of those guys is. Perhaps Matt Kuchar, perhaps. I, I, I mean, who's the equivalent of Hogan, Trevino and Graham? You know, precise, beautiful iron players, great drivers, really precise, controlled swings. I mean, arguably three of the most precise players who ever played the game. Mm. So if you're looking at history, you, you, know, you would look at the most precise players who are out there today. And I mean, do you see precise players today in golf? You see lots of so many powerful players. I mean, that would seem to rule out Dustin Johnson and Bubba Watson and guys like that. You wouldn't say they were precise. So, McElroy, is he a precise Why He's flashy and long. And I mean, you know, a guy like um, Molinari is a precise player. Mm. You know, if he could putt well, he could do well there. Uh-huh. Graham McDowell's kind of pretty precise. Uh, you know, I mean, Adam Scott, well. Maybe. Not sure, maybe. Possible. Jeff Shackelford, you are at the Memorial last week. Did you see anything that gives you some clues to next week? Um, I would not pick Roy McElroy. He looked absolutely, <laughs> completely exhausted. Uh, he just looked like a tired person who's uh, whatever. I don't know what's made him tired. I, I think he's played a lot of um, – he's, he's traveled the world quite a bit the last couple of years. A lot going and on in he, the background there too, isn't there? Yeah, and then there's that, and, and things, yeah. he just—he just did not look—he uh, did not look well. He looked like a tired person, so I would not pick him. I don't feel like it's a course, probably uh, for him. Uh, Tiger, who knows? You know, his putter just disappeared last week. I feel very strongly about Graham McDowell just because of his recent play in the U.S. Open, and and I feel like Marion's going to be at uh, an old style. Uh, grind fest and and the kind of the last person to not screw up will win. A little like last year where Webb Simpson uh, played the 18th hole well. He got himself close and he and whereas uh, McDowell and Furyk kind of uh, screwed up uh, at the end and McDowell was a little unlucky on the last hole. And I love Furyk. It's either going to Pennsylvania and he's going to get all rah rah about being in his home state and it's a perfect kind of grind fest for him. Uh, I don't think distance will be uh, a huge issue. Although, if it's soft, some of these holes they've lengthened are going to play extremely long. Um, so, so there will be some reward um, for distance. But uh, uh, 
a lot of it, of course, will come down to the weather. And, and uh, I know they're getting a big rain, I think, Friday or Saturday, Jeff. And, um, yeah. yeah. After that, we, we'll see. Scar tissue for Furyk, Shaq, last year was – it was brutal on him the back end of last year, wasn't it, after what happened at the U.S. Open? I think only if there's some sort of setup quirk that really bothers him uh, again. He, he, he still is not over that, Mike Davis, putting that tee up. Even though he had every opportunity, as did his caddy, to see where that tee was located. Um, and, and Mike telegraphs most of these, these things. And if you pay attention, you, uh, you, you'll know about it. So he, he's still kind of uh, cranky about it. And uh, if there's some wacky... T placement way up or way back, which there are a few that have been kind of rumored. Um, he needs to he needs to get over that, and I, I think he's uh, he's so determined to, to, to win this that uh, uh, I think he'll he'll be able to get over those little neuroses. Mm, Jeff Silverman, now you've studied the fields, the champions, the course, and the whole thing all put together closer than any of us here. Do you get any sort of sense or feeling about a type of player, or maybe a particular player that you think that the circumstances suit? I have to tell you, I've, I've known I've known Jeff. Jeff, how long have we known each other? Oh gosh, uh, fifteen years. Well, I, I, I'm just going to say, ditto <laughs> on, on Graham McDowell and Furyk, and and and, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Uh, a couple things. First, about course setup, uh, uh, they are going to play the third hole sometimes from the sixth tee, bring it back about 270 yards, oh. uh, um, and they will also play the third hole. Less than a hundred yards, a thirteenth hole at less than a hundred yards. Oh, cool! Uh, uh, but then, just bury the pin somewhere where you can't find it. Uh, but Trevino said something really interesting, and I, I, I think when it comes to marrying, this is something y- you have to pay attention to. Is that when Trevino got to Marion and played his pra- his first practice round, it was like holy moly, I can win the Open. That's what he said. Because what he realized is he's straight enough with his driver. He might hit it 30 yards. He, he, may, he may be 30 yards behind everybody else hitting their driver, but he's straight with it. So they can't hit driver here. He can. And all of a sudden, he's going to be playing the same seven irons, eight irons, nine irons into, into the short greens that the big guys are because they can't, they can't bring out the lumber here. So I think you look at the guy that's short. Somebody I read somewhere, uh, uh, he wouldn't be my pick necessarily, but th- this this is a, a, a perfect Tim Clark course, mm. you know. Oh God, uh, 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 <laughs> I don't see him as the guy, but but you know, Coocher uh, I, I see as, an, as another guy in, in the mix. I mean, I, I'm, I'm yeah. picking I'm picking a couple of, a couple of chalky chalks here and and uh, and something else. The guys I don't pick, I don't pick Tiger here. I don't pick uh, uh, Mickelson here uh, because uh, if they are offline. Uh, they are really, really in trouble. Uh, Mickelson was out Monday and Tuesday playing, and uh, um, you know, basically said it's an amazing golf course. Uh, you, the, the long holes are much harder than I thought, that, and and the short holes are birdie holes. Uh, uh, if if depending on the weather, uh, um, you know, if it's wet, they're going to kill it. Uh, Molinari killed it in the final of the amateur because it was wet. He, I think, mean, it was six under par. Uh, 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 through 15 holes, uh, but uh, uh, nobody cared about that because they knew that it's the conditions. So if it's if it's firm and fast, look for the guys that are uh, not the killer strikers uh, 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 in terms of distance, but are accurate, and then they can be hitting equivalent uh, irons into the greens, which will give them an advantage. 
an attitude, I would think, too, Clay. It's the US Open. What did um, what did Tom Weisskopf say? People tell me that you know they they oh, yeah. play in a US Open. What they actually mean is they'd like to be good enough to play in a yeah. US Open. Nobody wants to play in a US Open. It's just it's a torture test, isn't it? Yeah. Now, now Jeff, you were talking about seven irons at Marion. There are no seven iron shots at Marion. You know that. If you're Hogan, <laughs> if you're Hogan, there are no. <laughs> You know that story, right, don't you? I seven irons, but you ought to see me hit a one. Did, yeah, he did. Take, he took it out of the bag, did he not, Clayton? So he looked at the course and said, I don't see anyone need to hit a seven iron here, and he took it out of the bag for the week. Is that the – I think that's right. Yeah, he said there were no seven iron shots of me. I mean, I mean, Jeff will know the story better than I, but that's right, isn't it, Jeff, that he didn't have a seven iron because there were no seven iron Correct. shots at Marion? Correct. No seven, but as he explained, if I need that distance, I, I can adjust my, my six or my eight, you know, yeah. so – he had every club in his bag. Yeah, that's right. Or, or, or he's five or he's four, Jeff Silverman, or even he's three if required. <laughs> what he knew was there there might be the odd situation uh, where he needed the one, and he, he learned that in, in one of his early practice rounds. I will tell you this now. In his final practice round, the week before the, be, before the Open, uh, Hogan uh, uh, was playing with a, with a Marion member. Uh, this was not an official practice round. You had to go out there with members to play. So... Uh, he goes out there, hits a long iron, hits to that rough spot that he eventually hit his approach from on 18, hits a long iron, and asked the member, a guy named Frank Sullivan, who was his lawyer, Frank, you might have hit another shot. Well, you're going to say no to Ben Hogan? And uh, Hogan then draws out his, his forward, uh, hits a forward. I don't know how that forward went, but he knew at that, he knew at that moment, he knew at that moment that to hit a one iron, he could he could hit as hard as he could, which meant he could hit it straight. Keep his hands together. Needed no finesse on the club, no touch, which he would need to cut the forward in. And that was why he chose to make sure he had the one iron in the bag. He might just need to hit a shot really hard off the deck uh, 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 that he didn't have to control, but just got down low and ran up. And that's the shot he hit there. Uh, so for Hogan, there were no seven irons because he needed something else and he could manufacture the seven with any other club in his bag. It's a level of golf, I don't know, Clates, whether you've ever come close to it, but to my mind, it's it's mind-blowing to think that somebody could sort of think that way, be in, so in control of a golf swing that you could sort of make a decision like Jeff's just outlined there. It's extraordinary, well, isn't it? Well, I mean, arguably no one ever came close to that before or since. I mean, you look at that swing and, well, he was amazing. What a player. Yeah, truly, yeah. Truly amazing. Jeff Silverman, it's been fantastic to have you along for a number of reasons, but one of the main ones is because you've taken us back and told some stories that have just been absolutely fabulous, and to me that's what golf really is all about. It's about the fabulous stories, and we appreciate you taking the time to do that for us today. Well, thanks so much for inviting me. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I'm, I've enjoyed it too. Mike Clayton, always great to have you aboard, and I hope you enjoyed some of Jeff's stories there. I know you've oh, got a million terrific. of your own, but you might have no, got terrific. We, yeah. we could go all day, no doubt. Oh, no doubt. No doubt at all, except I've got a tea time at 11 o'clock, so we can't. <laughs> and uh, Jeff Shackelford, always great to have you along, and I'm sure you've got a couple of new stories as well, and nice to uh, to chat to a couple of blokes who know each other well, you and the other Jeff. Thank you, and thank you, uh, Jeff, for coming on. It was great stuff. Now I'm now I'm even more excited about next week. And, and well, it was a pleasure, and I'll see you next week, my friend. I well, look forward to it. You'll, you'll be getting to the course quicker than Jeff Shackelford will be by the sound of it, uh, <laughs> Jeff Silver. He's already had a whinge about it, and he's still on the West Coast, so... <laughs> It was not a whinge. It was just uh, 
projection a mention. of the potential. <laughs> I'm sure he's going to pass me in traffic, quite frankly. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Fantastic to have you guys along. And that wraps it up for State of the Game this week. We'll be back again in a couple of weeks after the, U- the US Open, I suspect, to chat about everything that's unfolded. I expect it'll be a good and exciting one, as it always is. Uh, looking forward to that. Looking forward to your company then also on State of the Game. State of the Game is a Talk and Golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.